Hello and welcome to Leading with James Ashton. This podcast brings together leaders from very different organisations in the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond. In each episode, my two guests swap stories about how they learnt to lead and their successes and failures at the top. I'm James Ashton, a journalist, conference speaker and consultant. In this episode, I go from banking to ballet. Joe Gordon is the head of First Direct, a trailblazing phone bank when it launched 30 years ago. Part of HSBC, it has 1.5 million customers, largely transacting on the internet and smartphone and gearing up for the open banking revolution that could see it recommend insurance and energy deals alongside savings accounts and mortgages. Gordon was unloading carrots as a Sainsbury's graduate trainee only 15 years ago. After several years at BT, he took over running HSBC's call centres in 2015, moving to First Direct two years later. Mark Skipper is the chief executive of Northern Ballet, the Leeds-based touring company that popularises ballet through more than 200 performances every year in towns and cities across the UK. Dracula, Queen Victoria, Jane Eyre, The Little Mermaid and Casanova have all had the Northern Ballet treatment. Skipper has spent 32 years at the company, joining as deputy stage manager in 1987 and taking the top job in 1996. He's been forced to carve out new income streams as state funding has fallen experimented with beaming ballet into cinemas and become a leading voice for the arts outside London. I began the conversation asking Mark what it's like for him when the curtain goes up on a new production. It's always exciting. As long as the preparation has been as it should be, then it's the most exciting night of the year when the new show is there being shown to the public for the first time. And are you really able to enjoy it then? depends how technically difficult it is. I've always got confidence the dancers know exactly what they're doing. We have brilliant technicians, but often we're quite adventurous with how technical we make the productions from a staging perspective. And there's always those moments that you think, actually, that didn't go perfectly in rehearsal. Will it be right tonight? So the most recent show that people are talking about from Northern Ballet is Victoria. How long is something like that in the planning? In total planning, probably about 18 months. Um, I mean, not in rehearsal, but in terms of the choreographer, the writer, the composer, everybody getting together to actually create the piece. You know, it starts off about 18 months out um, and then the real work sort of finally happens in the studios in the last sort of eight eight weeks. And what what is your sort of main role in that 18 months then is to make sure that things are on track, that, you know, people are sticking to the brief or the, or the numbers add up or what do you yeah. add, do you think? Once we've sort of um, decided who the creative team is, then it, my job is to con- contract them all so that we actually have all those people um, and the terms and conditions in their contracts, um, agreeing the fees, et cetera, et cetera. And that is, as I say, quite a long way out. And then it's just monitoring the process. We have budgets for sets, budgets for costumes, um, just making sure we keep on track during the creative process. Joe, at First Direct, what is the equivalent, if you like, the um, the curtain up, the, the moment of excitement when you can sort of sit back and, and think, you know, wow, we've achieved that? I suppose we can we can never sit back as is the perennial nature of, of, of trying to drive change. But I think for us, it's those, it's those moments when we've got a big campaign launching, when we're trying to either talk about uh, new offers, new products or new services that we're providing for customers. So, for example, when we launch changes to our mobile app, for example, or we recently launched something called FD Pay, which is a way to pay through WhatsApp, kind of social media, that would that would be a moment for us to say, we've achieved something, let's look and, and see what we could do going forward as well. Because you've got to, I guess there are, as well as those frontline people in First Direct that, that we associate going right back to the phone and now increasingly on the app and so on, you do have those sort of rooms full of boffins who are creating the next new stuff that you as the boss have to say, we're really going to put some uh, emphasis on this now, guys. 
Yeah, I think, you know, when we think of uh, t- uh, First Direct, we probably historically think of a telephone bank, but now it's a digital bank, right? So 90% of our servicing is digital and 75% of our products. So uh, not just boffins, boffins everywhere, you know, brilliant, <laughs> brilliant people, kind of be they working in the back office, doing processing, building apps, doing IT, doing marketing, uh, a myriad of people across all our business helping helping to drive it forward. Mark, interested in division of labour, there's you as CEO, there's also an artistic director. So is it is it a case that they worry about what's on stage and you worry about what's off, or is it not as simple as that? Um, to a degree, yeah, your assessment is, is correct. But we certainly overlap um, with each other. There's, it's very much about sort of discussion and mutual agreement in terms of what we're going to put on stage, how much we're going to spend on it, how the whole thing will come together. But at the end of the day, I worry more about raising the money for it, how we sell the tickets, the artistic director worries about the artistic quality of what actually goes on the stage. What are the variables to selling the tickets? I mean, I guess that's something actually that of of the many things you talk about, the contracting and so on, the sale of tickets is something that is not within your control. The sale of tickets is is really quite a major part of what we do. Um, We perform uh, currently in over 50 venues across the UK and we have to adapt to the economic situation in each of those venues. So, you know, we always try and keep tickets prices affordable. You know, it's not just about making money as a commercial business. It's actually balancing a budget. So it's always looking at how we can actually access as wide an audience as possible, making it affordable for them, but obviously just keeping the um, the company afloat financially. What do you worry about most, Joe? Is it keeping the customer happy? I think uh, it's trying to... Uh, keep up with customer expectation. So in, in that line of sight, you know, uh, as, it, as all of us, the zeitgeist outside the walls of any business dictates the pace of change. And then trying to keep up with what those expectations of customers are in the, in the industry you work in to try and make sure you can continue to kind of, for us, it's pioneering amazing service. That's our, our MO. How, how do we continue to deliver that for today's customers as well as yesterday's customers. And what, but what about sort of, is, is it too much to expect your customers to, to love the bank? I, I, I think when you think about uh, relationships, that's probably the best way to try and think about what banking could be going forward. And for us, especially in First Direct, looking at the way we can use data and information, then actually to become more personal, more relevant, to be able to be a bit more bespoke is within our nature. And then if you do that for someone, I think maybe not love, but definitely trust. Trust. We'll try, well, I think any banker would take trust at the moment. Yeah, I think there's two tr- <laughs> two types of trust. Though I think there's that transactional trust, yeah. i.e., I trust you to move money if I ask you to, or hold on, or have a financial services guarantee. But also that emotional trust, which is I trust you to help me out to do the right thing by me. If you've got all the information on me, then you should be able to provide products and services that suit my needs mm. um, specifically to me. And I think that's an interesting dynamic that will play out today more so around what emotional trust looks like for yeah. people. I suppose it should do. I mean, I don't think in banking, though, we have got that. I think if, if you're dissatisfied, people don't change accounts as much as they do now in, say, energy or, or others. Yeah, I think, the, and the regulator's trying to do something about that, right? So I think with the advent of open banking, with the current account switching service, and actually the ease at which you can do that now is, beca- is becoming easier and easier. We're seeing the switcher market grow um, and more people starting to experiment. And I think equally we see the younger generation, the fluidity and the, the transience at which they can move about and their expectations means that it becomes easier to do so. And, and that's got to be a good thing for, for the whole industry. Yeah. Do you, what do you think of, of the likes of Monzo, Starling, Revolut? These are sort of the, the hot fintech names. They're sure. not even banks. They're just too cool um, for that. Do you see them as a, as a threat or, or are they, have they got a lot of growing up to do? 
I think they're great, right? So in, in, in 1989, First Direct was the original challenger bank, right? It came into the business, uh, to the industry, and tried to shake up the business model. And these, this is what these guys are doing now. I think there's a bit around how do you make sure that you do it day after day, year after year, and you've got to build that trust with people. I think these guys are wanting, you know, Monzo, Starling, are wanting to be banks. And I think equally people like Revolut and Yalta coming in and saying, what if we're not a bank, but we could offer a, a, a kind of service to customers? And I think that's a really interesting dynamic for us so it keeps us on our toes but equally it's not something that we are uh, are not addressing it's not something that we're not taking uh, taking advantage of and doing ourselves sure. as well who, who are your competitors in, in in that world mark i guess there's a there's only so many nights out people can have so who do you do you look at other forms of theater is it netflix yeah we do certainly compete on the touring circuit um we're the sort of most widely touring ballet company in the country so we have a lot of areas where we have a, a sort of a clear access to audiences for dance. Um, certain major cities, there's competition with the other major ballet companies. I think as much as anything, we probably cross over with musicals a little bit. Um, we do a lot of ballet titles that are literature based. So there's a lot of dramas perhaps that cross over. But I think because we've been out there on, on the road for coming up on 50 years, it's our, our 50th anniversary starts later in 2019, we sort of have a loyal audience who come and see our work. So it works pretty well from that perspective. Though times are always tight, people have to make choices about how they spend their money. Uh, and we're always up against that that risk that people would choose not to come and see the particular title we've chosen. And it has been a huge, as you say, a huge number of titles that, that you've got through. I mean, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, Jane Eyre, Ugly Duckling and so on. I guess the you measure success by what? The number of people that come to see the shows or, or there needs to be a sort of degree of financial balance in there as well? I think there's several things. I think the artistic quality has to be the most important thing because we're an arts organisation and that's what we're setting out to achieve. Uh, financially, we have to sell tickets. Uh, we have to make ourselves attractive to sponsors like First Direct. Otherwise, actually, we can't sustain the company. We, we currently have to raise more than 1.2 million each year in fundraising, and that's quite a tall order. So you have to have the right offer to actually engage with those corporates, trusts and foundations and individuals. So, so it's, it's almost that sort of credibility to say that we're doing things at sufficient scale to welcome their money. Yeah, absolutely. I think the scale of what we do, the, the um, depth and breadth of what we do, where we get to in the country is actually quite a major contributor for the success that we get, certainly with corporate support. I would imagine First Direct wouldn't support us if they didn't have access to their customers all over the country. Similarly, we have support from a Sainsbury's Trust because the audiences for our ballets are from all over the country where there are Sainsbury's connections and it just makes sense for them to actually give something back to their customers. Joe, to come back to you, what has been, I think it's been two years now you've been you've been in charge. You've just had the just over, yeah. What's been the biggest success so far? I think um, recently this year we, we hit number one spot in the KPMG Nunwood customer survey. So I think we took Amazon off the top spot there, which was a, a real privilege for us. I think equally uh, last year we we hit in the inaugural uh, customer and market authority uh, banking rankings. We hit number number one uh, as well. So I think that was a big success uh, success for us. So I think those things, whilst also landing new things like a new uh, app to our customers and new functionality and new kind of customer journeys, have got to be a success with our customers saying, Do you know what? We not only have liked First Direct in the past, but more of us are coming there now. And we're seeing those customer numbers grow, which says to me, we're making some progress in a very tough environment. I was going to come to the numbers because there was always that feeling that you've already invoked the spirit of 89. You know, it's such a great launch into the market. And, sure. and really people think, well, you know, maybe First Direct, all customers talk about it and they like it and so on. But you would think it might have got out to more people by now. Maybe that's your challenge. 
Yeah, and and I think it's a, it's a balance because I think um, first direct and it was never set up with being a, a telephony bank. It was set up, you know, there's this, there's this lovely story of a, of a group of people who went in a room and wrote on a piece of paper, and it's, this has gone down in first direct mythology. They wrote on a piece of paper, we want to pioneer amazing service, mm. and I love the kind of um, a timeless quality of that thought. Right, it's, it's not specifically aligned to a channel or a context or even today in mobile or internet. It's just saying whatever the best service is. Uh, for this this time, for this group of people, uh, how can we offer it? So today, from my challenge, is about leveraging that as well and making sure that we get First Direct out to more people. You know, And we've seen the growth in the last couple of years uh, be significantly greater than it has in the last 10 or so. And where's that piece of paper now? Is it framed somewhere in your office? Or you don't have an office? I, I don't have an office, no. <laughs> but it, 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 those words are on a 20-foot banner on uh-huh. the side of our building. And what have you changed? I suppose we've changed a number of things. So we've changed, uh, we've gone through trying to modernize a lot of our infrastructure. We've changed lots of the customer facing technology, such as the apps, such as we're just going through a big change with our internet banking as well. We're modernizing that. Uh, equally, we've done a lot in terms of internally in the organization. And M- Mark will know, and I'm interested in his thoughts. And when you're trying to change a, a business, trying to get the mindset of people to be about how do we address today's challenges rather than yesterday's challenges. And you talked of 1989, lots of the great people who, who work in First Direct have been there for a number of years. So getting that mindset and saying to people, how do, you, how do we challenge for today rather than what was yesterday is, is, is a big kind of uh, leadership piece, big thought piece as yeah. well. And Have I you think, still got some people there from 89? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so I sign, I, I personally sign the cards for every uh, five-year anniversary and, and yesterday I signed a, a card for, for 40 years and that means they were with First Direct before it was First Direct. They were with Midland Bank uh, and then migrated to First Direct in 1989. Right. So, so right. yeah, lots of people. How do you uh, respond to that, Mark, in get, terms of getting your people? I think you've got, um, I think it's about 120 staff or similar, and I guess that sort of swells and contracts depending on what's touring and what's out there. But how do you make sure they're always looking forward to the next thing? I think it's always about the production. I think everybody, regardless of whether you're a musician, a technician, a dancer, a creator, a marketing person, a fundraiser or whatever, we all aim towards the curtain going up at 7.30. And that's always our focus. Whatever the production is, there is that something there you know, in, in sight that we have to make happen. What do you, I'm interested in the thought process when you talked a little bit about the financials and the sort of the commercial realities of, of, of touring ballet around the UK. What goes on in your mind when you think you'd like to go to a new town, but you're not sure of the, um, of the economics, if you like? That's always a tricky one. And the circuit is pretty established. Um, if we go somewhere new, it will be with safe repertoire. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, we do have titles which would be um, unexpected as ballet, Boy in the Striped Pajamas, yep. 1984, various things like that. Still a lot of Nutcracker, though. Not a lot of Nutcracker. Really? No, okay. we only do Nutcracker about every five years. But we do bring things in like Nutcracker mm-hmm. or Cinderella or Beauty and the Beast, those mm-hmm. family-type titles. One of those will come in every season, and we can pretty much guarantee that we will bring in a significant amount of box office income from those titles then it allows us to actually be somewhat more creative, perhaps, in some of the other titles that are more unexpected for the audience. And you've talked about the, the numbers. I mean, the Arts Council money is, is, is flat now until 2022, about £3 million supporting you. So in real terms, obviously, that's, that's coming off and off. What are the, decision, the tough decisions you have to make there? Obviously, you have to up the sponsorship and if you another support. If you can't do that, then is it sort of fewer dates on the tour or fewer dancers on the stage or fewer instruments in the orchestra? Yeah, it's an interesting question, actually, because going back to around 2012, and I know that does take us back a little while, um, there were significant cuts from the Arts Council for all arts organisations. We actually lost 25% of our funding. 
Now, at that point, it is a serious situation to lose that amount of money, obviously. And we had to make decisions. And I sort of looked at it, okay, we can cut dancers, as you just suggested. We always have live music for all our performances, regardless of what scale it's at. Even the children's ballets have four musicians. So we make sure we make that thing that live for them. Um, we could not create any new work. Or you just look positively and say, okay, how are we going to solve this? And ultimately, we decided not to cut back, but I just pushed forward with new fundraising campaigns, up the game in terms of what we could raise from fundraising, a little bit more careful, perhaps, with the choices of repertoire to make sure that we didn't take too many risks at that point. Um, we launched a campaign, which I felt a little bit bad about at the time, it was called Sponsor a Dancer, or, or even Buy Back a Dancer. So we were saying, actually, if you don't support us, we're going to lose dancers. If you want to keep the dancers in the company, help us. That's a bit like the BBC when they say, don't cut the licence fee or else Attenborough will get it. <laughs> absolutely. What, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, and that actually turned things around in terms of, you know, becoming more and more successful with our fundraising. Mm. Um, and yeah, we're where we are now. It's not quite an Arts Council grant, Joe, but regulation, has that made business a bit tighter for you? I mean, it seems to be whenever I talk to a banking boss, there's much more paperwork or the equivalent. And actually, it's harder to make money and particularly while interest rates remain so low. Yeah, I think um, I think the, the the regulator is trying to drive uh, both change in terms of opening up the industry, obviously, and then change in terms of protection for the consumer. And I think it makes it a, a very interesting space, and and also a space that kind of forces a pace of change that probably hasn't been in the last few years. And I know I'm sure every bank boss before me had probably said the same thing year on, year on. But as we sit here today, the level of regulation changes to payment services, the opening up of open banking, third party data, uh, the challenge of cyber and fraud. Um, but they're all very valid things they're doing. And for us, therefore, instead of seeing them as any kind of weight around the neck, you've got to see it as an opportunity and an opportunity to improve customer service, but also bring in new features, um, new functionality, new technology that enables our customers to have a better journey with us when they bank with us. And you mentioned cyber. That must be the thing, given what's happened to TSB and others, that must be the thing that keeps you awake at night. Well, cyber and, cyber and data, of course. So the ability for us to be able to, you know, we get back to that point of trust, right? And, and, and fundamentally... Uh, banks have a lot of information about each and every every person. So the ability to say, I trust my bank to hold that data secure is paramount. And we've got to make sure as we um, protect our customers through that journey that we are able to balance it. So people, customers want us to want us to be able to say, how do you use my data to make um, me better off, to look after me, to provide the right products and services, but also make sure that that data never gets into the wrong hands. Sure. And then equally themselves, when they're saying, you know, with the opening up of, uh, of third party data, they might go to a, a third party financial services and say, can you pull my data now from First Direct? And with open banking, they can now do that through other banking providers. And therefore, they need to make sure that their want in terms of presenting their data and our protection of their data balances on a day to day basis. So it's open banking, as you're talking about, we're, we're kind of in the foothills of it now. But yeah. if, if it all works well, then people won't just be getting their banking from First Direct. They might be um, uh, taking you up on your advice about the best uh, energy provider to go for or even a holiday. A hundred percent. So that, that thought of having a, a kind of financial well-being partner, someone that could help them and, and guide them, provide recommendations on, on what uh, the way they spend their money, uh, the curation of their uh, finances is something that you've got to say is a responsibility. As soon as, as soon as we have the data that says I can see, for instance, Mark, you're paying too much on your British gas bill. Mm. Surely I have a responsibility, therefore, to tell him, do you know what, if you, if, if you switch that, uh, we could save you 
save you some money. And and there therein lies the lies the rub with that kind of responsibility and consent and understanding of data point of view. So suddenly it's not it's not a bank. It's, a, it's it, in many ways it's a supermarket. I think it's someone to help you with your financial well being. And and ultimately, if you think about what other people are calling it, probably marketplace. It's probably more of a a financial marketplace to yep. be able to cu- curate than than anything like a supermarket. But it is opening up those opportunities for customers that says, now I have the ability to see how you spend your money. Yep. Uh, let me help you. So that was a, so that's an opportunity that you're you're taking by the scruff of its neck. Yeah. So yep. la- last year we were in um, uh, the FCA sandbox with an, an app, and we called it for, uh, Arthur by First Direct. Part of that was looking at um, both open banking aggregation, so bringing all your accounts into one place so you could see it. Looking at how much money uh, you can spend on different items, so categorization, so saying, oh, mm. you, we can see you've spent this much on shopping or this much on shoes, and then equally something on marketplace to say, um, looking at the way you spend your money, maybe the amount of money you have uh, after your uh, regular spending, you could put it into this. You could do this with it. You could change your broadband. You could change your phone. You know, all those opportunities are now afforded to us with the level of data that's provided. Mark, one of your big innovations, I think, has been offering bespoke ballets for children. So getting more, you know, effectively extending the market you can reach to. Tell me about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is one of the most exciting things that we've done. It started in about 2012-2013 with a very small grant from Leeds City Council to create a community performance of Ugly Duckling in Leeds. And it took off from there, so six, seven years later, to being actually our most successful product in terms of reach. Uh, Every single one of the ballets that we've created so far have been filmed by the BBC um, in interpretations for CBeebies. And we now have, you know, viewings on CBeebies in in excess of probably, what, 1.5 million every year. So, you know, that digital media is so important for actually reaching audiences. You can do so many performances and we will give something like 275 live performances. But with those, you can reach probably less than 200,000 people. When you look at the digital world and... Also, where we're moving forward into more cinema and uh, and other distribution, it's just a no-brainer in terms of actually adding that to your offer. And is it a gateway to people watch it on the telly and then want to see the want to see it live? Yeah, hopefully. It's it's hard to track it. Um, you know, you can't really um, gain access to data from from TV. Even worse, from cinema. I'm I'm learning um, quite a lot at the moment that it's the cinema industry is quite backward in terms of actually data and collecting data and using data in the way that we do to sell tickets and sell sponsorship and whatever. So it's 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 a learning time in terms of how we access that audience in, in more detail, but it's growing, um, and that's 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 the important thing. Ultimately, we create ballets productions for audiences to see. And tell me about your time. I think thirty two years in total at Northern Ballet. Yes. Normally, I only meet lawyers and accountants who've done thirty years anyway. So okay. you're you are the first in ballet, but so many different roles in that time. Uh, I think you to begin with, you were doing the stage. You were sort of an yeah. assistant stage manager or, or or similar. When was the point at which you thought, you know, I could run this or I am running this? Well, taking just a small step back for the benefit of Joe being here, I did work for a bank to start with. I wasn't going to bring that up, but no, yes, no, it was, it's, it, it's okay. fine. So we, there is a connection. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I spent about five, six, seven years um, working for, for a bank. I better not name the other bank because we're talking about First Direct today. I think we could. I think okay. we could say it's Barclays. It was Barclays. Yeah, okay, you said it. It was Barclays. And so that was my first career. Um, and I did that for a while, but actually... It was interesting, but not um, really what I ultimately wanted to do. So yeah, I got involved in working in the theatre, started off in stage management in various roles, became company manager, which is in charge of the touring side of the company. So I did that for about six or seven years, briefly became head of planning, which was working in the chief executive's office. And 
within, I think, five, six months of me taking on that role, the chief executive left suddenly. And I was sort of the person that was there to maybe just pick things up for a little while. And fortunately, I guess, I managed to prove myself during that period. And when the, the job came up for, for appointment, applied and, and got the job. In, so that was 1996. So, yeah, so 20-odd years now of, of being chief exec. And is it as seductive as it, as it uh, suggests? I mean, you haven't, you haven't looked back, you haven't left. Is it the best job in the world? I would say it probably is one of the best jobs in the world. It's always exciting. It's always different. You're creating something. But what I always remember is without that time spent in banking, I would not be able to do what I do now because that gave me the sort of sound business background. At the end of the day, now I oversee finance and marketing yep. and fundraising and all of those other things that you have to have that business background. So it was a great grounding. But actually, for me, it's hugely exciting that we are actually creating things and audiences yep. are enjoying what we're doing. So it's true. Bankers make great leaders and bankers are socially useful. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, just before you... If it was ever in doubt. Yeah. If it was never in doubt. Never, <laughs> it was sort of, just before you um, came in to run First Direct, you were part of the wider group, HSBC. You were looking oh, after call centres, probably called contact centres yeah. by then. Now, that is interesting as a, as, a, um, as a sort of a leadership role. I guess you would call that your first leadership role, maybe? So I had a number of leadership roles before that. Again, okay. again running kind of large operations, pr primarily in BT. I suppose my first leadership role was was uh, one of my first jobs in Sainsbury's and and that was running the produce section yep. of 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 Sainsbury's that was my first leadership role you know any any role when you're having to uh, lead people you know have a team of people under you um that, that's where you cut your teeth i think and i know i as a student i worked at Sainsbury's so i know produce is Relentless. it's it, there's no messing about you've got to get in early the fruit and veg have arrived on the pallet you've got to get it on the shelves as fast as you can because there is a every industry talks about shelf life but produce yeah. is really the one that has shelf life. Yeah, I think anyway, it, it, it teaches you a number of things w without you knowing it teaching you. It's that kind of Mr. Miyagi kind of uh, a, a approach of <laughs> how do you make sure you balance the availability, you balance the wastage, you get the, make sure that you where you're putting the products is where customers want to take them. You're you're putting so it's a, it's that you know that retailing mentality of how do you make sure you satisfy customer customer demand. And I think you know that that therefore gives you a, a good footing with the balance of, of leadership as well. Mm. By the time you got through to HSBC. The point, the question I was going to ask is, if you're if you're looking after contact centres and, and call centres, you immediately have to be very good with people, with your people, sure. because you have to. I guess you have to imbue the guys in your team with um, every call's got to be as good as the last. Sure. So the job I was doing at HSBC, I was running contact centres, uh, both digital contact centres and so definitely contact centres across the UK and also some offshore in India and, and Manila. And that was about 5,000 people. And, and here in uh, First Direct, I'm doing about 2,500 people. And I think when you've got any, that kind of, those kind of numbers, you, you realise the ability for you to actually uh, do the do is, is significantly marginalised. And actually your ability to share the message, convey the burning platform, build a, a vision for the future. That's what people buy into. And therefore, being able to do that and support the people who directly work for you, free them up to deliver. Therefore, that's the, that's the kind of secret source. Clearly, you're still quite young. Have you ever had been in the room and thought, has it ever been a struggle to get the respect you deserve as a leader or to get the people behind you? I, th I think uh, I don't feel that young, right? So I'm, I'm uh, almost 36. Uh, I've got a young, I've got a young family. Well, that can age I, anybody. You know, my uh, widow's peak is slowly receding. Uh, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't feel that young anymore. I think, you know, historically, maybe it was always my issue more than anyone else's in the room, I think. Really? You know, I, I think so. I, I think as soon as you get to prove yourself, then it's just your own insecurity. And I think very quickly people forget how old you are, 
are hopefully what you look like, your sex, your your relationships. You know, people should forget all of that and actually say, yeah. you know, what are you bringing? And I think um, for for the most part, uh, I've been really lucky to be part of environments where people are more focused on what are you bringing and what are you doing than than anything to do with anything else. Mm. Mark, uh, along your journey, have there been mentors or people you've turned to for advice? It's been an interesting journey. I guess for the most part, I've just learned it on the job. Um, you know, there's always people who know the particular subject perhaps better than I do. But I think that's about how leadership works. You know, you have an overview of everybody's work, but you can't do their jobs for them. But actually making sure that I've got people around me who are, are skilled in their area, whether it's marketing or fundraising or whatever, is, I think is key to success. Because I guess in the time you've been at Northern Ballet, you're, you're effectively a little further from the stage than you were. You know, it's no, it's no good you going out on tour night after night with the guys. You've got to let them get on with it. Absolutely. I mean, my situation now is that I always try and go to the opening night every week um, wherever we are on tour. So that can mean you know, going up and down the country from Edinburgh to Canterbury to Southampton to whatever. But actually, I think that's important to be there as part of the company. And I think the fact that our company ultimately is much smaller, about 120, 125 people, it's easier to get closer to them than obviously than, than Joe can with his, his two and a half thousand. And I think for me, it's really important to engage with as many of those people as you can on a regular basis. You know, I always have an open door policy in, in my office, so any of the staff do feel they can come and talk to me. And actually, by having those conversations, I think you just learn things. So that's about 200, 230 performances a year. So there is always somewhere somewhere in the UK, there's always going to be a Northern Ballet opening night. Um, not quite, because we're quite seasonal. Okay. Yeah, March okay. to June and September to Christmas, but we cram a lot in in that brief period of time. And uh, I think we, well, we talked a little about skills, but those, as you say, you learnt on the job, you brought the banking with you and, um, and picked it up as you, you went along. Yeah, absolutely. And that really is the story. But I think having been a stage manager first in the theatre is the best grounding. You know, you have to be on the ball um, in control of a lot of things when you're running a stage for a performance. You know, a stage manager controls everything, the lighting cues, you know, the, the sound cues, the scenery changes, everything actually happening on time, on cue. So I think actually I would recommend to anybody work in stage management. It focuses you. Mm. And what about um, I'm interested in your perspective on being a leader of an organisation based in in Leeds and, you know, a nationwide brand. But you're based in the city. I mean, you've talked a, a little about how, how you think that's affected the funding you've had, I think. But I'm also interested in from a talent point of view. Talent is always a challenge. Um, you know, we're always looking to diversify talent. Uh, there's a lot of young people being trained as dancers, um, but you know, we recruit our talent from all over the world. So, I mean, I think Leeds is actually the centre of the UK pretty much. If you look at, you know, up into Scotland and, and down through mm -hmm. the south, we're in a very good position to, you know, to be a, a major city outside of London where we do manage to attract the talent that we need for the company. I mean, sadly, every year we may audition three or four hundred young people and maybe only take two or three new dancers. So it's a tough world. So we certainly don't struggle by, by being in, in Yorkshire. Sure. And then, and, and what about from the funding point of view? I mean, it, 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 I think it's still true that, you know, ballets that are based further south seem to get a, a, a larger slice of the pie. Yeah, it's definitely challenging from a funding perspective being outside of London. We are the fourth you know, largest ballet company in the country and we get the fourth smallest le level of funding of, of all those companies. So it is tough. I think a lot of the um, individuals who support the arts in London are there in London and they don't perhaps see the, the value of what's happening outside of London. So it's always a challenge to convince those people to support something that perhaps they can't see as regularly because it's not in London more than once or twice a year. So we have all of those challenges, but at the end of the day, we make it work. Yeah. Um, Joe, what about talent with you? I mean, you've got two and a half thousand jobs, I think you said, under sure. uh, uh, with, within First Direct. I think Leeds is quite a big centre for you, but also Glasgow sure, from yeah. memory. Uh, are you? Is it is it easy to recruit? 
So I think uh, the benefit of Leeds is the amount of thought leadership through the, the student presence in Leeds is phenomenal. So actually, if you think about when we, where we're recruiting now, and we're recruiting primarily um, uh, in uh, the more technological space, right, in the building in programmers, IT, change agents, business analysts, I think actually there's quite a rich landscape in Leeds to be able to pull from. And equally, mm-hmm. we're going out and having those conversations. We're sponsoring things like hackathons at the university uh, to actually start to build an engagement with these uh, these centres uh, sooner rather than later. Equally, though, First Direct has been here for uh, for a, n- a number of years. So we've been able to, to build a relationship with Leeds City Council and understanding around our presence in the area. Uh, and you'll see if you go anywhere near our site in Sturton, we've got big boards saying people, people wanted. Uh, and, and we really try and publicise in the local area. And we've been able to, through flexible working, get a lot of people, one, and we talked about it earlier, people who've been in for 40 years, but a lot of people coming in on part-time contracts who come and say, well, I'll come for a couple of years, and then they find themselves still here 15 years later because mm. it's a great place to work and it's a good environment. And so what does it... I'm interested, you talk all about the, the programmers inside. I mean, what does the factory floor look like? I mean, this is not... People have an idea about what a bank looks like, but sure. I suppose First Direct must look like any other tech company, really. Uh, I, I, I suppose when I first came through the doors of First Direct, it's built on an old Waddington's factory in Sturton, but it's a unique it's a unique building. It's, it's kind of almost like two airport hangars put together. And as you walk in, you just get this buzz. You know, imagine you're listening to your, your favorite piece of music and your body starts to move. You know, for me, it's Stevie Wonder superstition. But um, uh, your body starts to move. You, get, you, get, you go in and you just feel this buzz and it comes alive, the noise, the vibrance, the color, and, the, and all the people milling around. So it's a big, wide, open plan office in two, in two halves of a building. Uh, with a kind of 50-foot ceiling up above it in a big hangar environment with huge big banners and uh, lots, lots going on to keep you interested. But more than that, you just feel the vibrance when you walk in the place. And has there been any um, has there been um, help you've had on the way? Is there a mentor that sort of helped you yeah, through qu- these roles? Quite a few. So the one that I will call out is a guy called Lawrence Christiansen. He's got a CBE, but he was uh, brought up in a uh, Newcastle uh, council estate. Uh, he, he worked primarily in retail and he was a supply chain director in um, Safeways. And then he moved over to uh, Sainsbury's. And at Sainsbury's, I spent 18 months with him. I was his kind of business planning and support. Um, and we went around the country and I, I took a lot of learning for him. And, and he, he helped me specifically around talking to me about how do you deal with people? How do you make sure you do the right thing by them, and how do you, how do you be a leader? And I think the uh, the fact that he came to uh, he came to my uh, wedding about six years ago is probably is, is testament to the fact that we still got a good relationship. Still talking. So, yeah, we are. Yeah. yeah. And did he did you seek him out at Sainsbury's, or did he sort of um, uh, anoint you and think he he's he's going places? So um, might be I, a question for him. Yeah, maybe a question for him. So as far as I understand, you never know what goes on behind the scenes, I guess. But sure. as far as I understand it, I wanted to go and and, and work with him. And uh, we had an opportunity and I went through a selection process to get it. Yeah, yeah. Like, like so many things in the, when you get into a big organisation like a BT or a Sainsbury's, it's actually about taking your chances, I suppose. It is. But, you know, I'll, I'll hark back to something uh, Mark said that, that made me feel like we had a number of synergies. Sometimes it's those battlefield promotions. So be it Mark in the planning office that just ha- so happened to be in the chief executive's office at the right time. Or for me, throughout my career, being in those opportunities where it, where suddenly there is a gap and you're just being yeah. willing to say, yeah. Do you know what, I'll take it. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll have a crack. Mark, I wanted to talk about so this is one or two instances where I, I suppose it's where you do sort of really gain your spurs. I think there was a flood a few years ago. I mean, it sounds like an awful, awful thing to happen. And I, I think there was some damage. But is that something that where, where you, you really learn from and sort of gain as a leader? 
We've certainly had fire and flood, not, pest- and flood. not pestilence oh, right. so far over the, over the years. But yeah, the most recently uh, issue was a flood, which was quite devastating. You know, we lost a lot of the sets and costumes from our various productions. I can almost turn that into a positive because it gave you the opportunity to actually rationalise what you had. Did we need that production anymore? Um, did we need to rebuild it? Maybe not. Um, reinvest. So actually, ultimately, it came out as a positive, and we've had to change how we um, store our scenery on slightly higher levels where the uh, mm. warehouse can't flood. But what are, I guess also, uh, you know, on the the day after that or whatever, there's a morale issue as well. You, you've got to get your people. You've got to pick your everyone up again, haven't you? One should have done in my position. Unfortunately, I was in uh, North America at the time, so I had to leave it to my finance director, who's my right. deputy in that area, right. who took care of things and went and helped uh, sweep up the water. And when you're back in the building and every, it's buzzing around and everyone's rehearsing and so on, is it ever possible to be lonely? You know, you've got all this going on in your head as the CEO. Do you ever sort of feel you know alone with your problems? I don't think so because it's all about sharing and discussing and having great people working for you. So, you know, I always feel whatever the issue is that we need to discuss, there is somebody else who's perhaps a little bit expert on that particular area than me that you can talk to and find a way through it. So it's an exciting place to be. You know, in in an arts building, there's always people, you know, we've got five or six hundred children coming through the building every week. Um, You've always got music. You know, it's it's a great place to be. Although so is Joe's, because having been in the the aircraft or hangar at at First Direct, it's a a real buzz in there as well in terms of a work experience. Well, it's vast and it's never quiet. I would think, yeah. even even though it's even though it's, as you say, it's gone from voice to, to to data. I mean, it is not. You can go into a lot of offices now. Certainly, newsrooms are a lot quieter than they used to be. But sure. I, I guess yours isn't. No, and we still offer twenty four seven telephony as well. So you could go in regardless of time of night. And I've previously gone and, and spent an overnight with the guys there. And equally, that it's still buzzing regardless of if it's a midnight or a midday. Is it quite important for you? Is that is that what you do to keep connected with the grassroots? If you like, you do your shift. So, uh, so I suppose uh, again to echo a point that was made earlier, my ability to just get to the front and understand what's going on in the business is is really important. So I spend time doing lots of call listening. I answer customer complaints. I uh, do something called Challenge Joe, where the front of the business can ask me to do different parts of their jobs. And I think the one coming up, I'm, uh, I'm going to be on the phones for half a day. And uh, the lady who, who challenged me is going to be doing my job for half a day as well. So I think it's things like that that try and both get you connected, but also help you understand what it means to both work in this place and also be a customer of this business. Why do you think this is not necessarily a question about banking but why do you think so many companies have still got it wrong in terms of the contact either the call center or whatever uh, you know it's poor provisioning out of a, um, something that's been outsourced or or whatever you know so many people have stories of poor experiences sure and for me i think it harks back to what's been so great about first direct throughout the throughout the years and you think about <clears throat> data being a new thing it's not the use of data is probably a new thing but the ability to take information and turn it into something that's personal and relevant and, and being able to demonstrate a level of care I think if you think about where First Direct has really excelled, it's being able to do that in nearly every instance, you know, being able to demonstrate that I know you, I understand you, I'm like you and I care about you um, is something that actually I think you think more and more uh, people and more and more businesses are waking up to to say if I can, and it gets back to emotional trust, if I can demonstrate that really well, then my customers will have a better connection with me. Do you think either of you have been lucky at all in your role in terms of, you know, opportunities that have presented themselves? Oh, I'm sure I have just, you know, being in the right place at the right time, as we said before. In the office, um, yeah. Yeah, I think absolutely I have. And 
just being able to do something that I've enjoyed for for over thirty years, I think you know that's the best luck. Well, almost most of Joe's life, I've been doing that job. I wasn't going to mention that. I wasn't going to mention that. Although Joe, as we found out, the big the big reveal from today is Joe is older than we thought. There you go. There you go. Have you been lucky? Of course. At every at every single turn and at every single moment with the relationships you build, with the conversations you have, with the positions you find yourself in. I suppose the only adage I'll, I'll put on that is um, you have to be willing to take it. You have to be willing to take your luck. Joe Gordon from First Direct and Mark Skipper from Northern Ballet. Thanks for the conversation. Thank Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to season one of Leading with me, James Ashton. These podcasts are being released weekly. Please subscribe so you don't miss the latest one. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please follow us on Twitter at LeadingPod and rate and review. Thank you.